The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by the wonderful Joe Weisenthal, who works for Bloomberg and is co-host of the Odd Lots podcast, a very brilliant podcast, which I recommend all Americano listeners listen to after they've listened to Americano, obviously. And we're going to be talking about the debt ceiling and the debt ceiling crisis. And it's hard for the heart not to sink when you start talking about the US debt ceiling, because this is a perennial story, isn't it, Joe, that comes along every year and everybody gets depressed by it and thinks, oh, well, they're obviously just going to expand the debt again. And yet there's always a political fight. It always gets pushed. It seems every year people say, oh, this time it really could be right up to the brink. And that's exactly what's happening today. I I saw Ramesh Panuru writing for The Washington Post that the scariest part about this debt ceiling crisis is that Washington isn't scared. Are you scared about it? You know, I do think that, like, the savvy take... Like, ultimately, I think the savvy insider Washington take, like, oh, they always raise it in the end, is probably right. Like, they always do it. They've done it, like, 86 times in the past. I guess if, like, you had to bet on, like, what is the most likely outcome, you're like, yeah, they're probably going to raise it. But it is depressing that this is the thing that comes up because it is this, like, perfect combination of, like, completely pointless. It's never played any, like, real role in, like, constraining debt. The law wasn't actually even originally intended to do that, though we could get into that maybe in a bit. It never does anything. The stakes are high, though, if the ceiling isn't raised. At least it would it would appear, because, of course, the U.S. runs a large federal deficit and, you know, has a high amount of public sector debt. And if you hit a debt ceiling and you can no longer issue more debt legally, then you could be in this situation, theoretically, in which the U.S. government misses a payment on what is the largest, most liquid fixed income asset class in the world. And given what we know about, you know, when banks miss a payment or something that's catastrophic, intuitively, like, this is pretty high risk stuff. So even that sort of like small outcome possibility that there's a game of chicken and in the end, maybe there's no compromise and one of the, you know, they don't swerve off. It's pretty bad. And so, yeah, probably they're going to raise it. It'll probably be fine. But that doesn't mean like it isn't, it shouldn't be like a source of anxiety. Well, a lot of people are talking about Joe Biden and his role in 2011, which I think is seen to be the the worst the brinkmanship got between the Democrats and the Republicans. They pushed it right up to the wire. Do you think that Biden, he rates himself as a negotiator, doesn't he? And a sort of hustler on the hill. Do you think he's he's going to be quite bullish and that could cause a sort of dangerous brinkmanship? Yes. So, you know, the way I think about it is like, look, like Biden was part of those negotiations in 2011. And the perception in 2011, and that did go right up until the end, was that Biden, having served in the Senate for so long, had a good relationship with Mitch McConnell, had a good relationship on the Hill, so that he would be able to facilitate something. And in the end, 
that, those weren't particularly fruitful negotiations. You're right that I think Biden still sees himself as someone who prides himself as someone who's like has some ability to reach out to the other side of the aisle. But I think they learned the lesson of 2011. Like, why spend time? I mean, you have a Republican Party that is arguably the two people that Biden was negotiating with in 2011, Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, who now we could look back and think these were the most mainstream institutionalists. <laughs> you know, moderate, normie Republicans you could possibly imagine. McConnell's still there, but he doesn't run the Senate anymore because Democrats control it. But like that shit, in retrospect, that's like the easiest negotiation in the world compared to the sort of like where the Republican Party has gone in the last 12 years. So I think he looks at that situation and, you know, he says, oh, I'm not going to repeat that disaster. And two, you know, the other thing that I think like for Democrats as a whole is like, and it's taken people a while to realize this, it's like Biden is such a winner. And he's just like, he's got so much legislation passed, much more than anyone expected given the slim majority. He won the presidency and he just came off like the best midterm election of any president ever, basically. The Democrats did so much better than expectations. So it's like, he's like, why? Well, you know, that's great. Let the Republicans spend the next six months or however long talking about the debt ceiling and how they want to cut Social Security and whatever their ideas like. Right now, I think the Democrats' stance is, please talk more about the debt ceiling. Please talk about all the things you want to cut. Please talk, you know, please let, uh, you know, all the uh, Freedom Caucus people get as much airtime as you'd like. And I think the Democrats perceive that as being politically advantageous. It's fine. You know, it's up to them. But again, to your, you know, you brought up the Rush Panuru point. It does create that sort of like, well, what are some reasons this time could be different with respect to it? And I think that's one dynamic. Let's talk a bit about the Republicans, because it is different. It's very different to 2011 in that 2011, you had the you were coming off the Tea Party midterms, which were yes. very that was very oriented about fiscal responsibility. That's not so much the case anymore. Of course, there's the Freedom Caucus. Of course, they talk about it a lot. Yeah. But Trumpism, which has been invented since then, is not so interested in that. No, it's really like the general like, climate overall, both within the Republican Party and I would say outside the Republican Party, including just sort of like mainstream, even center left pundits, et cetera. They're just fiscal politics just aren't really a thing these days to the degree that they were 12 years ago. Hey, that's kind of weird because we do have very high inflation right now. So you think, OK, there's a time where it really talks makes a lot of sense. Like we should maybe be having a conversation about cutting spending, et cetera. You'd think it would be now, but it's just completely reversed. But you're you're completely right. Like the Republican Party, it's almost like they're going through the motions when it comes to this, which is that, yeah, the 2010 midterms, which brought the Tea Party to power, taxes and debt were like the big things. And I don't really, you know, in retrospect, we are in the middle of a financial crisis. I don't know why that was; those were so salient, but they were. And that was what the party... Now, you, even Trump, who you associate with, like, you know, the pretty, like, far right of the party on some level, you know, our, our political compasses have gotten pretty uh, disoriented, probably in the UK, too, over the last uh, decade or so. But he's like, oh, yeah, make sure, like, okay, don't talk about cutting social, social security or Medicare. When you can't cut defense, because there's no Republican appetite to cut military spending, and you can't cut entitlements, uh, social security and healthcare spending. Like there isn't a lot left to trim. Like, of course there's domestic spending on things like, you know, farm subsidies and school lunches and all that stuff, you know, but like 
it's you can't balance the budget in those areas. And so when you even have Trump telling the Republicans like don't you know don't be stupid and say public things about cutting entitlements, it's really hard to like build any appetite for any cuts at all that would make a meaningful dent. Is that where the you know to use a overused phrase the moral hazard comes in because. Republicans do seem to be going through the motion. Biden clearly thinks he knows how this game works and it always ends up okay. And to a certain extent, the public are sort of shrugging off this potential crisis because nobody's scared anymore. And that's where the moral hazard creeps in. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, think, you know, again, if there's a reason to think this time could be different, it is the combination of there's the general sort of like everyone thinks it's going to be fine. And so, like, everyone's, like, posture is down. And then the dynamics in the House of Representatives are distinct because they just went through this very contentious speaker election. Kevin McCarthy, the current speaker of the House, did not enjoy particularly broad support among his caucus to, like, get that seat. And so in order for him to, like, secure that speaker of the House role, he basically had to make a number of concessions to a fairly like small minority of hardliners who now have a significant stake in order for him to get the votes needed to become the Speaker of the House. And so what you have is this sort of ironic situation in which the Republicans didn't do all that well in the midterms. They barely got control of the House. And yet, functionally speaking, the House has now moved much farther to the right. Ironically, had the Republicans won a larger majority in the House of Representatives, it would have... probably meant that the center of gravity would have been more centrist because Kevin McCarthy wouldn't have had wouldn't have needed to make those concessions to the far right mm. in order to secure the speakership. And so there yeah, it's one of these another one of these wrinkles. Even if McCarthy, you know, I suspect like McCarthy deep down does probably does not want to have this fight. It's a losing fight. Yeah. It is almost impossible to imagine a scenario in which this like ends up as like some sort of victory for Republicans. Probably deep down, he's like, he doesn't want this, but he has to have the fight if he wants to hold on to his speakership. And Biden knows from his Obama, from the Obama years that it's actually quite good for a president to present these troublesome Republicans. I'm just trying to get things going. They're always getting in yeah. the way. They're always blocking everything. And that's, you know, perhaps he sees that as his path to re-election. Yeah, for sure. And he's, there's no, like, he, I doubt the White House sees any upside in negotiations or anything. And again, look, even the, you know, the people who write for the Wall Street Journal editorial board, New York Times, et cetera, these sort of, like, you know, there were a lot of fiscal fears 10 years ago. No one's really talking, I mean, it's still, still some, but by and large, like that's just sort of gone away. So even like the sane voices in Washington, it's just like, they're just thinking about other stuff these days besides like long-term. Because I think that like, if you go back to 2011, you hit, you hit a lot of like sort of like centrists on either side who are like, look, the Tea Party, they're crazy. We all know they're crazy, but they kind of have a point. Like we really do need to like, there is some like kernel of truth to them, what they're saying about spending. We need to like get it under control. No one's saying that anymore. Like that faction, they're like, they're crazy, but they kind of have a point faction. Mm. No, one, there's no one in the media like really talk about that these days. Well, let's go, let's go for the sort of apocalyptic Tea Party scenario. You know, what, well, first yeah. of all, actually, what just happens? What happens to global markets if we, get, if we go over the edge? I mean, you know, this and part of it is just that the unknown is, like, so extreme. And I do think that anyone who feels, like, certain what they say, you know, like, look, it's pretty simple. 
that the U.S. Treasury market is the biggest market in the world. Typically speaking, defaults, I mean, a pretty big deal even when it's a much, you know, the, the Lehman default in 2008 is the example people would reach for of like, here's a relatively small organization, entity in the grand scheme of things that had catastrophic ripple effect. And I think the idea of like something equivalent happening with like the U.S. Treasury market is like kind of like unfathomable. I mean, the Russia default in 1998, that caused a crisis. And that was like, how much Russia debt was there? Yeah. I don't think that, there wasn't very much. So I do think like one could tell a story in which it wouldn't be the U.S. defaulting would not be the end of the world. Like, I actually think that you could actually plausibly make that case that, well, OK, so Treasury securities are defaulted, but what, there's nothing else to buy. There's no other asset that you would go to. You know, here's how, like, treasuries are the flight to safety asset. Everyone knows that. Mm. that. When people are nervous, people buy U.S. treasuries all around the world. There's not some other thing that is anywhere near the size of the treasury market that could play that role in a panic. So it's like, what would happen in a panic? If someone wanted to really make the case that say, well, you know what, the debt ceiling, a default would cause a panic. But in a panic, people buy treasuries. And so ironically, people would buy the one thing that's been defaulted on. I actually really don't completely dismiss that possibility, as crazy as that sounds. Like, I do think that's like possible. But on the other hand, this sort of like first level normie thinking is not crazy, which is that history says when a big entity defaults, it's pretty bad. Yeah. My guess is it would be pretty bad for the U.S. government to default. Well, we had a, we had a sort of a frisson. <laughs> of anxiety with our brief experiment here in Britain with trustonomics. Oh, yeah. There was sort of fear that, you know, British bonds would suddenly yeah. become completely redundant and historically British bonds have always been such a great investment and so on. But, I mean, is there a possibility that you will have the kind of fright that we had in trustonomics happening on a much bigger scale because obviously the American economy is much bigger and the reverberations in the, in the wider markets could be enormous? You know, it's a good question. I mean, again, I think that part, you know, you think of like what happened with when the Truss and Quartang released their budget. Part of it was like the surprise element. There's like, okay, we're already in a time of like high inflation. Maybe think like, okay, that's a good time to like cut spending. And then out of nowhere, it's like really intense. Like, well, we're, oh, the surprise, we're cutting taxes. It came out of nowhere. And I think that created a number of things like in the sort of like financial pipes or like where the market reaction was much larger than should have been justified by the actual policies, which I think in my view, in the case of like some economists, like were never as like radical as a lot of people insinuated at the time. I think what would, I think what happened at the time with the trust budget was they rolled out what I think was like some fairly modest tax cuts in the grand scheme of things, but it did catch the market at a moment of surprise and a period of heightened volatility. And then you got this big market reaction and then you had the pundit say, oh, this dangerous, like radical budget of like, you know, blowing out the debt, uh, the debt constraints, et cetera. It was never like that big to begin with. I think it was mostly the element of surprise and the sort of doubling down that really sort of like got the ball rolling on the market fallout to that. You know, look, I think like uh, the history of the debt ceiling, because it always gets raised, you don't get that sort of like market feedback mechanism that you'd like to get. Like what we would like to see perhaps is that in the three weeks leading up to the X date, they call it, stocks start to decline, treasury yields start to rise, people start calling their representatives and say, you look at what you're doing to our 401ks. Historically, that doesn't happen because everyone's like, well, they're going to do it at 1159 before midnight. 
we all know they're going to do it. So we're not going to like panic and be the stupid ones that sell three weeks out and then have to buy back three weeks later. So I don't, I think part of like what gives people anxiety is that because this is like a very binary thing, default or not default, and no one thinks it's default really happens, that you don't get some of that market feedback that like builds pressure. People compare it to the TARP vote, right? So in, I guess that was a late 2008, the US government tried to pass the big bailout. The first version of the vote failed unexpectedly in the stock market tank. And then there's like, oh, we get, we really, we're killing the economy by not doing a bailout. And then a few days later, they took the vote over again and then it passed because people saw what happened in the market. I don't think those dynamics are in play because also a missed payment on a default, it's like a very binary event. It's not the economy slowly or rapidly collapsing such as we saw in late 2008. It's just on or off. And everyone thinks that default is not going to happen. So you don't get that sort of like market feedback. Well, the mood music from the kind of Federal Reserve, the turn of the year started to be a little bit more positive and perhaps a little bit looser on, on monetary policy or suggestion that it might be in the future. And Europe stuck to the tightening. How would a major fright about the debt ceiling affect what the Federal Reserve does? How would that play out? You know, that's a really good question. You know, my guess is, based on how Federal Reserve officials usually talk about this, which, you know, it's important to raise the debt ceiling and we're not going to say anymore. And that by and large, they feel like that's not their job to do anything. Now, my understanding is, I think some of the minutes, so like, I think some transcripts from 2011, they've definitely come out because transcripts of Federal Reserve meetings do come out five years after they happened, so you can go back and read some of them. And they did talk, like, you could read the 2011 ones, and there was talk about contingencies. Like, well, we have, like, bond-buying operations. At the time, in 2011, the Fed was still doing quantitative easing, uh, expanding the balance sheet, and I think there was talk about, well, maybe we can buy defaulted securities in order to maintain stability in that market in some way. Mm. But I think, you know, I think there's a very good chance that the Fed will, is currently and will look at that. They would say, we want the debt ceiling to be raised. But in the meantime, our job is to look at the data, inflation data and job data, and hit our dual mandate. And we're not really going to change our policies based on some speculation that maybe the debt ceiling isn't going to be uh, hyped. Well, let's talk about job data a bit, because obviously there's been spectacular employment data for the last couple of years in America, and it, it seems to be so stubbornly good. But we are seeing a lot of these stories now about big tech firm layoffs and Goldman Sachs layoffs and sort of major companies. And it's not the little guy getting a rough deal. It's the, the guys who are doing pretty well are getting kicked out. How significant is that? Is that being overplayed by the media? What, what's going on there? It might be. I mean, look, these are interesting stories. I mean, when it comes to tech specifically, here was a sector. I mean, the tech companies, Silicon Valley, Facebook, Apple, Google, etc., Amazon, Microsoft. After the great financial crisis, these were the first companies that really started to take off. Like they were the first companies that went into recovery mode in 2009, 2010, while the broader economy just suffered this like ongoing malaise. So we're sort of used to like a 12 or 13 year run in which the tech industry just did so much better than every other sector in the economy. The stocks went up so much more, the pay went up, the hiring, the growth, et cetera. And I do think it's kind of like unusual now. Like what's striking is, wow, for the first time in, you know, maybe 20 years, 
We have an economy that is not in recession, but a tech industry that's contracting and laying off workers. That part is new, so it's novel and it's interesting. But it's not feeding through yet to the broader economy by any measures. The unemployment rate at its lowest level in 50 years. Just this morning, as before we recorded this, we got initial jobless claims, which fell again. So total layoffs in the economy are declining still. And, uh, you know, it's a U.S. story. It's also a European story. I think it's also a U.K. story that there's all kinds of, like, economic challenges right now. But for the most part, like, employment continues to not be one of them, even if there are some stories about sectors that are shedding workers. Well, could it be, then, that it's good news for people in the lower-income scale of the economy and possibly a difficult time for people who've been comfortable for a long time? I mean, absolutely. And I do think, like, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, like, you know, the World Economic Forum in Davos just ended up. And, of course, every year in Davos, I'm sure, like, since the history of Davos, or maybe in the last 20 years, like, I'm sure inequality is a central topic that they talk about, right? Like, they're always talking about inequality, inequality, which is great, you know, that's an important topic. But whenever I see it, I was like, well, what did you think it was going to look like? It's like, okay, so we have, like, wages growing at the low end. And we have a declining stock market, and now we have a softening job market for tech workers and bankers. Like, what else was it going to look like? This is the thing that you supposedly was like what we like have been trying to like see forever. And you know, again, like I don't think anyone it wouldn't be good for anyone if there was like an overall recession or some of these like layoffs snowballed. But the basic conditions of like, oh, it's hard to hire workers now in for Amazon factories. It's harder for uh, restaurants to hire workers. It's harder for Uber to hire drivers at the same time that the stock market is shrinking and big tech companies are laying off. Like this is kind of the thing in a way that people have been saying they want to see for quite a long time. And the, the word of, of Davos this year was polycrisis. And I mean, do you ever get the impression that large financial institutions, central banks and governments are just enthralled with, with crises now? And there has to be crises to sort of sustain political momentum, economic momentum. And actually, from what you're saying, it seems to me that we're not in, in sort of constant crisis in the way, that, the way that we're sort of told we are. You know, inflation is bad. And I don't think people should be dismissive or say, try to like sugarcoat that like it's painful for people and the price of gasoline is surging, especially here, given how car dependent the culture and the and, and rent prices really did shoot up quite a bit. So I don't think that like, people should be like dismissive of the costs. But on the other hand, like, you know, again, I think it's worth remembering the terror of February and March 2020 Setting aside even the health aspect, like the economic terror, like millions of small businesses closing, the highest level of uh, layoffs in history. You know, there were, there were restaurants that were talking, we had, even before even the shutdowns and the lockdowns, they were saying, oh, we haven't seen a drop like this in demand. So this is worse than the great financial crisis because people pulled back. And so I do think like we got to like be aware of some of the counterfactuals we're talking about. And I do think that like, you know, today, again, lots of data today in the U.S., we got GDP report. We're like pretty close to like back on trend, like things aren't perfect. But like, you know, I do think maybe there is some sort of like crisis inflation where it's like, look, like unemployment at a 50 year low. Is this a crisis? I mean, I don't know. It seems like it could be a lot worse than it is. Do you think inflation can come down? Because we've been hearing for quite a long time now that commodities are going down. There should have been this 
lag. It should yeah. be faster. It is happening in America a bit. It's not happening in Britain yeah. the same way. No, the big debate in, uh, for like an economist over, I would say, in 2022 is assen- has essentially been, can we get inflation to come down to trend 2%, something that we, could, we can live with, without a big jump in the unemployment rate? And I do think on some level, the jury is still out on that. On the other hand, what we've seen in the last, say, like three or four months is exactly that. So it's like we've shown that it can exist at least for a short period of time, which that inflation is coming down, it appears. It ha- or it certainly has rolled over significantly from its peak in um, you know, the sort of fall of uh, 2022. At the same time, the labor data has held up extremely well. And there's good reason to think that the uh, inflation numbers... There's already more coming down in the pipeline. So uh, rent is a huge contributor, obviously, to the inflation metrics. When you look at the private sector measures, you know, like companies, like um, online platforms, like they keep track of their own rent in- indices, they've been coming down. That number hasn't actually like showed up yet in the official government sector because uh, official government data, because there's a lag for various methodological reasons, but that's going to come down. So there's almost certainly like inflation is going to like head lower in the coming months. So whether in the long term it's possible to get inflation like back down to trend without some sort of weakness in the labor market, I guess the jury is still out on that. But at least like we have seen in the last few months, it has happened. And you even have people like Larry Summers, who I think was probably one of the loudest voices. He said like, look, we, we, we can't be naive about this. We're not going to beat inflation without some pain on the labor market front. Like we no one wants that to happen, but that's not, that's just it's unavoidable. And even he last week, I believe, said, you know, sometimes hope does triumph over experience. Like he's still skeptical, but even he has like become more uh, open minded about the possibility of that sort of so-called like soft landing scenario. I mean, there are still fears that this inflationary surge will be followed by a sharp deflationary spike. Or is a spike the word for a deflationary spike? Is that? Right? I don't know what the... Um, <laughs> yeah, just... Deflationary dip. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that on the horizon? I, I don't know. You know, like, look, I'll be honest. You know, I'm a journalist, so what do I know? I, 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 don't, I'm very, I have no good track record of uh, forecasting anything. There are, you know, the funny thing is, so like going into the year, the big question, you know, the stock market ended 22 on a very bad note. It was a bad year overall, and... People like the, the recession fears like really got going in like November of last year, and yet even now like start, starting twenty twenty three, some of the sectors that were like flashing the recession warning signals are all improving again. You know the one sector in the economy that clearly was very sensitive to the Fed's rate hikes is the housing market for obvious reasons because mortgage rates, and yet optimism is starting to bubble up again. We've had this little decline in uh, mortgage rates and there's apparently still a lot of people that just want to buy a home. You had uh, the home builder stocks have been doing very well, the highest level in almost a year. You had uh, Redfin, which is a big company that like sort of tracks listings. They're like, we're starting to see people trickle in and make bids and they even say like, oh, we're seeing bidding wars again for homes for sale. Freight, which was a sector of the economy that was like, or, you know, intermediate sector of the economy was like freight rates were collapsing in March and April of last year. And that was like the sort of ominous thing. It's like, well, when the caught, when the trucking companies have to like slash their prices, that can't be good. They've stabilized. They've started picking up again. So there are risks out there and there are issues. But actually, some of the uh, the flashy red lights have turned a bit yellow or green so far. So I think there's also reasons for optimism. 
On that note, that cheery note, we'll end it. Joe, thank you very much. Please come on again. Anytime. I, I always love chatting with you. I really appreciate the invite. If, if and when America jumps off the deck cliff, we'll catch up then. Yeah, that'll be a fun episode for sure. <laughs> In real time, we'll talk about what's happening. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Farose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.